On this podcast, we will seek to examine the stories, technology, history, and ideas that define mankind. We hope that you will join us on this journey as we quest for what makes us human. Hey guys, I'm John Lindeman. And I'm J.R. Parks. And welcome to episode two of What Makes Us Human. What are we talking about today, Jared? So, so John, uh, imagine that it's 1954, and you need to get 500 tons of material from Anchorage, Alaska, to an area some 200 miles north of the Arctic Circle. No roads, no airstrips, there's... There's too much ice to you know, use ships. Temperatures can get down to you know negative 68 degrees Fahrenheit. How do you do it? Whoa. All right, hold up. So, first of all, it's black and white television. Uh, yeah. Cool cars. Yeah. The poodle skirts. Yeah, probably. Greased back hair. Okay. And Marty McFly is coming next year. Yeah, I <laughs> right. You're right. I think yeah. You're right. Yeah. So, all right. So, why would I want to move all this into this cold region? So, in in the early 1950s, the uh, you know, so we're in the middle of the Cold War. That was you know, one of the things that you know, if you're talking about poodle skirts and slick back hair. Yeah. The the Cold War. Real cream. Was yeah. The Cold War was a real you know was, I don't want to say the Cold War was really heating up because that doesn't you know really work. It but, works. You know. So in the middle of the Cold War, the U.S. government realized that the quickest way at this point. For the Soviet Union to bomb parts of the U.S. was to fly bombers directly over the North Pole. This is you know kind of before like ICBMs are really a thing, and all the stuff you'll get into later in like the 70s and 80s. This is you know bombers you know literally dropping atomic bombs you know like the end of World War II. And for our listeners that don't know, ICBM stands for Intercontinental Ballistic Missile. All right. Fun fact, my uh, grandfather worked for Martin Marietta and helped put the Minutemen 2 missiles in silos out west. Awesome. So, And he was alive in 1954? He was. In 1954, he would have been 14 years old. Oh, okay. All right. So, so in response to this recognized threat, they developed what was called the Distant Early Warning Line, or the Dew Line. This was 63 bases along the 69th parallel from Alaska all the way over to Iceland. So if you look at a map, this basically goes all the way kind of across the top of Canada, as yeah. far as Canada goes from Alaska to, what'd you say, Iceland? Yeah, so okay. so Alaska, starting in Alaska, across the tops of very tops of Canada, Greenland, Iceland, wow. you know, all the way over. And all of the material for these bases had to be shipped by land in some of the harshest conditions imaginable with no roads. Now, are these bases being built to shoot down a missile from the base? No, these are radar systems. These are This is an early warning system. Oh, so that's right. Okay. The idea being, you know, if, if, um, if the radar picks up that there are bombers flying, you know, over the North Pole towards the U.S., it's far enough north because this is actually the third line and they just keep kept creeping further north this is the third line that the, the u.s military and the canadian military are develop canadian military are developing see i'm showing my age <clears throat> because where i go with this is the reagan era i go to are we shooting a missile down and we're not even that far we're, developed yet yeah we're, we're not this they're is, delivering these myth these uh, weapons via bomber yeah and so this would be you know enough time to scramble planes to go intercept the right. bomber basically 
Now, our if we have any children listeners, you guys already know the easiest way to pull this off is to just give Santa Claus an RPG. And he could take them out as they fly over the North Pole. But I guess we didn't do that. The, the U.S. Army and its contractors turned to a guy named Robert Gilmore Letourneau. And I hope I'm pronouncing his name right. Sounds right to me. have uh, struggles with... Uh, La French. These sort of, yeah, French-sounding names. So R.G. Letourneau was born in 1888 in Richford, Vermont. Okay. He was an inventor of heavy machinery. His, his company, Letourneau Technologies Incorporated, provided around 70% of the Allies' earth-moving equipment during World War II. Oh, nice. Okay. It's one of those things that, like, when I first saw that, it, it, I never really think, oh, the Allies needed earth-moving equipment in the war. Like, yeah. it's not something you, you, it makes sense as you think about the, the devastation of landscape and, and everything that, that had to happen there. But Letourneau had very little formal education. I believe I saw he, uh, he quit school after seventh grade. And, um, wow, that started, must be nice. Started working as an apprentice to an ironmonger. Now, what exactly is an ironmonger? Sounds like somebody that makes fun of iron, like points and laughs at iron. Literally, like, you know, if you think of like an iron worker with a hammer, like molten iron being poured into a mold, and this person's pounding on it, that's, that's an ironmonger. You know, it's the most basic job. That's a rough job. Yes. So he started there, but by the time he died in 1969, he held... 300 patents, and was a very wealthy man. He even started a university in Texas, which is which is named after him. 300 patents? Yes. That's up there with, like, the QVC lady. He, uh... But in 1953, Letourneau sold his earth-moving business to Westinghouse. Okay. And devoted himself to improving a system that he had been working on that used diesel-electric transmissions for each wheel of a vehicle to move heavy loads. So, you know, instead of kind of having, like, drive shafts that move to maybe one or two wheels on a vehicle, um, or even or even maybe even uh, all-wheel drive vehicles, but it's still the main engine of the vehicle moving it. No, these are actually, like, individual electric motors moving each, powering each wheel. Each wheel. And the idea here was, you know, you could use it to get into places that, that were very difficult. The first of these machines that he developed was the VC-12 Turnitrain. So this is an off-road vehicle designed for logging. And the idea was it could haul logs out without having to build the roads that are required for typical trucks. You know, you think even today, if you see them, you know, go logging some property, they're bringing in a lot of gravel where they're bringing in those trucks to, to bring the logs out. This is, you know, designed to avoid that. You can get into more difficult areas without you know without the trouble of you know building roads this the T, the VC12 Turnitrain had a 500 horsepower Cummins VT12 engine with three 20 ton trailers mm. each wheel was powered by a separate electric motor and after testing four more trailers were added with an additional engine on the rear trailer providing more power so just yeah, like a locomotive yeah, kind of yeah so you've seen the trains that uh, you know, when they get really long, they'll have another engine or two on the back, you know, helping push. push. The same concept. All right. Now, with this, the guy driving this, he, he worked for the Army. Is that right? This is by the Army? Well, this is not by the Army. This is just they're developing. Like, this is the oh, this first is before that type before okay. the Army took notice. All right. Well, could this thing go in reverse? Uh, I thought I, about that earlier today. 
I'm sure it could, but I uh, I did not. Could you imagine trying to back that thing up? Yeah, I did not read anything on that. Okay. Uh, it was completed, so the VC-12 Turner train was completed in February 1954. Okay. And supported a maximum payload of 140 tons. Wow. So, to your point, the U.S. Army took note of this vehicle and tasked his company with developing the TC-264 Snow Buggy. Now we're in the money. This vehicle had eight 120-inch rubber tires that allowed it to essentially float across like the snow and the tundra because you know the, the ratio of, of rubber tires to, to the vehicle's weight. And if you miss that, folks, that's 10-foot tires. Absolutely. Yeah, okay. It was completed in June 1954 and sent to Greenland for, for testing. Um, they actually used it in Greenland to haul some of this material uh, that was needed for you know that end of of the dew line. In the 1980s, the this is a, a funny side note that I came across with this. The owner of the Bigfoot Monster Truck came across four of these giant 120-inch tires from a Seattle junkyard and purchased them for a thousand dollars. And they were purchased on the Bigfoot four and five. So if you think of the Bigfoot with those giant massive tires yes that actually came off of the tc264 snow buggy alaska freight lines which was was contracted with delivering this 500 tons of equipment to the dew line requested a vehicle of their own from the laterno company the resulting vehicle was the vc22 snow freighter this is a single locomotive and six cars able to haul 150 tons cross rivers up to four feet deep cut through snow drifts and operate at temperatures as low as negative 68 degrees Fahrenheit. The vehicle provided AC power from a 400 horsepower Cummins NVH-12, again, powering each wheel of the vehicle individually. It's 274 feet long, and it's, it's exactly, it's, it's an off-road train, basically. You know, this it looks like a train with this big, you know, engine car out front, and then the trailers behind it but it's it's totally off-road so if you look this up it looks like tonka cracked out of its mind <laughs> i mean this is awesome if you're into tonka trucks or something this is your thing yeah, my, my six-year-old nephew loves like all kinds of heavy machinery and stuff and yeah i want to i want to show him uh, a picture that i'll reference here in a minute now what what's the max speed of this booger I read on one of them that I think it was the final one that uh, that it could haul its its you know 150 tons or whatever at like 20 miles per hour. What? So it's not breaking any land speed record. Right. But still, it's okay. It's, well, it's, hold up. So I'm getting tickled. So this journey is a 400 mile journey, right? Yes. So what's the math is probably pretty easy on that. We're we're gonna we'll get into that. Oh, okay. Because the the final one, the one the one that you're gonna have to have some cans of Vienna's or something if you're driving this. Yeah. Yeah. So so the, like the final one when we get to that, uh, the final prototype kind of took all that into into consideration. The VC twenty two snow freighter was completed and sent to Alaska in February nineteen fifty five. Okay. It performed its duties well in nineteen fifty five, but in nineteen fifty six, a fire in the engine compartment resulted in the remains having to be pulled out of Canada. Mm. I just, I have to wonder, what would it take to tow something <laughs> this large 
I mean, something similar size, right? Like, did they get another VC-22 Snowbreaker to come tow it out? Well, I think this is where Godzilla comes in, (laughs) and he just drags it out. It's in a, now the remains of that thing are in Alaska, right? Yeah, so, so they... So they weren't halfway on this trip, and then all of a sudden... Yeah, so they tow it back, and shortly after this incident, Alaska Freight Line's contract for the Dew Line ran up. And so the remains of this vehicle were just left to rot near the Steeps Highway outside Fairbanks, Alaska. You can actually see the remains of this on Google Maps, and I'm going to put a link to that in the show notes for our listeners. It's, it's fascinating. It's just left beside the highway. People drive by it every day. So we have a common friend. I won't mention his name, but uh, we have a buddy who's really into scrapping metal, and he would love to get his hands on that. Absolutely. Yeah. So in 1958, the U.S. Con- the U.S. Army contracted a larger version, dubbed the TC-497 Overland Train Mark II. The Cummins engines were replaced with gas turbine engines, which were higher power and lower weight. Specifically, the TC-497 had four of these engines, each capable of producing 1,170 horsepower. Now, is this the one that had the engines that also went into the Spitfire airplane? Uh, I don't know that. Okay, Um, I read somewhere that one of these had the airplane engines, and this sounds like it could be A turbine engine is is an airplane. Right. A jet engine, essentially. But the Spitfires, I think, were made by a British company, and this is a separate. This is okay. not. So, but so it had four of these, you know, each producing one thousand one hundred seventy horsepower, one in the control car, and three others spread throughout the train. And additional power cars could be added at any point along the train. They also made the cars from welded aluminum to you know, further reduce the weight of this thing. So it basically could just. The bigger you needed it, the bigger it could be, because you could just add another, quote, locomotive. Yeah, you could add more locomotives, you could add more more cars for, you know, more trailers for hauling. You could even add fuel trailers to these things, so you can go right. further distances. Okay, and just pray you didn't get a flat tire on a 10-foot tire. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, since steering this behemoth proved to be such a problem they developed a system where the individual car wheels would turn automatically at the same point that the control car's wheels had turned. So this allowed this almost 600 foot long vehicle to make 90 degree turns. That's epic. Uh, absolutely. So I this mean, thing is the length of two football fields? Yeah. And, and it's not even like the person driving it has to, has to kind of watch in the rear view mirror and go, oh, now I need to turn this wheel. Oh, now I need to turn this wheel. No, it automatically recognizes, oh, this is the point where the wheels in front of me turn, so I need to turn two here. Wow. So imagine if the Donner Party had had this. Well, we probably wouldn't be talking about the <laughs> We Donner wouldn't know who the Donner anymore, Party was, absolutely. yeah, because they could have crawled their way out at 20 miles per hour. <laughs> yep. And same concept here. You have you know individual electric motors for each wheel, and, uh, I don't know, it's just, it's fascinating. I mean, they were doing some of the same stuff with locomotives at this time, but this is totally off-road. Do you remember a few years back, there was a Chevrolet truck that had the the wheels? The I think the rear, you could flip a switch or you could do something, and the rear wheels, you could control them with your steering wheel. I don't do you remember, I don't remember that? that? No. I'm pretty sure I didn't dream that. And it was only like one year that that was out. Yeah. So to, to, to the point you made earlier, 
this this vehicle, this TC497, had a six-wheeled cab that was over 30 feet tall. And with the smaller turbine engine, it allowed for living quarters, so specifically sleeping areas, toilets, and a galley. For this is crew, where you eat your vianas. For its crew of six people. It even had radar on it. So eventually two more power cars and ten cargo cars were added, leading to its final length of, of almost 600 feet that wow. we referenced earlier. It was provided to the Army in February 1962, who shipped it to the Yuma Proving Grounds in Arizona. So don't ask me why, if they want to test how this thing doesn't snow, they send it to Arizona. I thought about that when I, when I read this article. I, I, thought guess about that's, uh, I guess that's just where they, you know, it's where they had the Proving Grounds. Otherwise, I guess they could just kind of off-road it in Alaska and see what it does. But it performed very well in testing, but by this point, in 1962, the heavy lift helicopters like the Sikorsky were coming into their own, and the Army decided to use them for the project. So, like a lot of technology, by the time it, this was perfected, it was already obsolete. Yep. So, the vehicle remained unused for some time, and eventually the cars were sold to a local scrap dealer. The control cab remains at the Human Proving Grounds Heritage Center to this day, and it retains the record for the longest off road vehicle ever created. Yeah, that will probably stand. I don't see a lot of needs for, you know, 600-plus-foot-long off-road vehicles. That's, <laughs> it's, it's a very unique use case, and as we've seen, it's already that use case has already been surpassed with, with better technology. Have you seen the picture of the CH-54 Sikorsky? Yes. That is weird-looking. So if you look that up, you have a helicopter that looks like it's missing 90% of the main body, and that is where it tucks in the vehicle or generator or whatever that it's going to carry. Yep. So basically its payload takes the place of most of its body. Yeah. And you I basically just have room for pilot and co-pilot. And that's yep. It. And I guess that takes away the pendulum effect, I think is what they call it, yep. where if it's dangling way down below and it's real heavy, it's going to cause a lot of issues. Yep. Yep. CH-54 T-A-R-H-E Tarhe. Yeah. Named after a Wyandot Indian tribe chief. And it means the crane. I think you just mispronounced the Indian tribe, but I don't know the correct pronunciation. <laughs> W-Y-A-N dot D-O-T. So, so that is the U.S. Army off-road train. Were you familiar at all with this? Before this I had never heard of this, and when I Googled it, I thought, I don't know what I thought. I've never seen anything like this. So, did they plot out their path so that, uh, so each time you're not plowing over fresh tree, you know, trees and bushes, I guess they plotted out a path, but they're going to like 64, oh, yeah. oh gosh, okay, all right. So maybe, you know, somewhat, I mean... But yeah, they're they're spreading out across. Wow! Now, how many of these were continents. there? Uh, well, there was there was the different prototypes that were used in different different areas. So you know, we mentioned the the one of the first ones was snow buggy. I think was used in Greenland. But and, I mean, did they uh, did they produce? Did they mass produce a couple of the? They did not. Oh. So okay. they would develop one and they'd use it, and then they develop they they'd go back to them with a request for something slightly different. Okay. Um, and they develop that and use it. And then the final form never made it out of Arizona. Okay. So. So this guy was zigzagging back and forth, getting supplies and then going to another 
do drop. <laughs> yep. Do line drop. Um, and then coming back on base, reloading, and going back to the do drop. Okay. And not right. just one guy. I mean, yeah. most of them had a crew. You know, the smaller ones had a crew of four, and, and the final vehicle was designed for a crew of six. So these people could switch off driving. They could probably, you know, in theory, keep moving the whole time. And you could do this trip in 20 hours, right? 20 miles an hour, 20 hours, 400 miles. Yeah, okay. I think that's about it. So that's not that bad. Yeah. But I would go insane doing a 400-mile trip going... 20 miles an hour. Get out and walk a little quicker than the vehicle. Than the vehicle, yeah. Or maybe run a little quicker. Yeah, you'd have to run. I don't even think you could run, but that's awful slow. Yeah. Yeah. But hey, I mean, it it did what it was designed it to do. It did what it, it was designed to do. It could go somewhere that nothing else could and haul 150 tons doing it. Wow. So I can't do that. You got anything else? I think I'm good. All right, let me ask you a question. What about this uh, Army... Off-road land train, um, what about it applies to what makes us human? The ingenuity of, of human beings to overcome obstacles and problems um, that they face. You know, this, is, this was a very unique use case to the point that we haven't had you know, anything, any request for anything like it since. Yeah. So just, yeah, just the ingenuity of, of human beings to, to solve problems. Unfortunately, the problem was caused by other human beings yeah that's true all right sweet well we hope you've enjoyed this guys tune in next time find us on social media pretty much all the platforms at wmuh podcast you can also email us wmuh podcast at gmail.com we love to hear from you we'd love to hear any topic suggestions you have what you think of the show any improvements and all that we're now on pretty much all the major podcast uh, platforms, so recommend us to your friends. Rate us on iTunes and any other platform, and let us know what you think. See you.